Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Hello and a happy new year to everyone. Today, we've got a snippet of a show from our friends at The Value Perspective. Their podcast takes a look at decision making in complex and uncertain environments, and they speak to people from a range of different professions. We haven't heard from them for a while. This one is with Edward Chancellor. Edward's a British financial historian, finance journalist and a former investment strategist. He's also got a new book out, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, 2022, The Everything Bubble. In this short excerpt, Edward and host Juan Torres Rodriguez discuss the biases affecting the decision-making of central bankers, the danger of group thinking, and why Edward doesn't buy into former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke's reasoning behind the housing bubble at the heart of the great financial crisis. We'll be back with a brand new episode of the Investor Download next Thursday at the usual time of 5pm. Until then, enjoy this conversation between Edward and Juan. This is a podcast that where we've explored decision making and human biases throughout the three years that we've been running it. And we have always thought of and approached human biases or behavioral biases in the context of the market place, the, the market investor. We have never thought about it or how, how behavior biases have, a, have an impact as well on central bankers and the people that are designing monetary policy. So I wanted to ask you, what sort of biases have an impact on the people that design monetary policy, say over the last 15 to 20 years, and maybe at the present? Um, so the biases of the monetary policy community, uh, I think um, that they're, let's say they're, they're there are twofold. One, I think, is is simply um, an a, uh, an academic is people adhering to the same academic framework or intellectual framework in monetary policy making. They have their so called canonical model of um, that that has a number of assumptions. Uh, that you know, we, <laughs> we, those of us who live in the real world and who've invested in the real world wouldn't necessarily adhere to, um, and so I think that, and and in particular, one of the, I mean, there are a number of problems I think with 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 the sort of monetary policy model, but what, one obvious, to my mind, one obvious consequence is that. It, it creates a sort of groupthink, um, and, and everyone adheres to the same model. Um, in particular, for instance, is, there's this belief that what happens in the financial world, whether it's you know valuation of assets or 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 the level of interest rates, is determined what's going on in the real world. Whereas, you know, I think there's something you know, a bit more nuance going on, which is a feedback between what happens in the financial world and what happens in the real world. I mean, friends, you know, we were just discussing a minute ago the impact of low interest rates 
driving financial engineering rather than investment. So there's a clear case in which you know the amount you know the amount of investment activity in the real world is determined by um, by something financial. Um, and I don't, and I, I think the monetary policy makers don't recognise that. I think you know. I think I, I point out in the book, you know, that the Federal Reserve is the world, the world's largest employer of of PhDs in mm-hmm. in monetary economics, and I think that that has probably a, a harmful effect uh, because it makes the chairman of the Federal Reserve extraordinary powerful person in determining the nature of you know the research that takes place and the conclusions of that research. For instance, I'm told that during the chairmanship of Alan Greenspan that went from, what, sort of uh, 1987 through to 2006, early 2006, that you weren't, you know, that at the Fed you weren't mentioned the word bubble. (laughs) It was a sort of... (laughs) It was a sort of not, you know, it, it was, it, you weren't present Chairman Greenspan with anything to do with any research suggesting that there was a bubble in the US stock market. I think un, under, under Chairman Bernanke, again, I was told by a former Fed governor that you weren't, you weren't to mention anything to do with interest rates being responsible for low interest rates prior to the global financial crisis being responsible for the U.S. housing bubble or for the flood of money into uh, securitized credit. Um, so I, the other day I, I was in New York at a conference and I met a, a former Fed governor uh, called Thomas Hernig, who'd been president of the Kansas City Fed, but also former head of the FDIC, the um, bank insurer, uh, and he he said he'd read my book and agreed with everything in it. It's <laughs> <laughs> sort of interesting because um, you know what I you know the only responses I've had so far, you know, from the if you will from the monetary policy establishment. Have been sort of via the pages of the FT and the Economist, which are, you know, rather dismissive of, of what I write. Anyhow, the reason I mention that is that Hernig, when he was on the federal on the um, the federal Open Markets Committee, the Interest Rate um, Committee, he he was one of the so-called hawks, and the hawks were those who were constantly fretting about the unintended consequences of ultra-easy money. And I think what happens, what happened, what probably happens at the Fed and, and at other central banks is just what happens, as you probably experienced yourself, on investment boards is if you tend to hold a view <laughs> uh, that is not shared by the rest of the investment board, you tend to sort of get shown the door sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all, all, all committees have a tendency to come round to a sort of group think. And, and then I think the other thing is, you know, I, I, I've elaborated at great length what I consider to be the, you know, the, 
the harmful unintended consequences of monetary policy, of, of, of if you will, unconventional monetary policy across a number of, of um, in different areas. But whether it's you know, the appearance of financial fragility, which we can discuss later if you want, but also the decline in productivity, rising, rising um, inequality and so forth. Now, you can imagine that if you'd been unwittingly responsible for some of these unintended consequences, one might not wish to sort of hear the message. Instead, you know, there's a, here you, perhaps in one of your discussions of sort of, of um, behavioral biases, you discuss the whole idea of cognitive dissonance. And the notion of cognitive dissonance is, is that you simply don't, uh, hear or pay attention to information that that is is dissonant to the thesis you hold in fact actually when faced with dissonant information such as a failed prediction forecast uh, people tend to double down to become almost more fervent in their beliefs and i i think that's what's happened to the monetary policy world there are as i mentioned in the book these um, these voices in the wilderness, um, it, and in particular, it's interesting that they there's only one institution where you find them, namely the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, which is you know sometimes known as the central banker's central bank. And there you had you know, William White, the former chief economist, who, who left in 2007, warning of the dangers of of central banks only focusing on price stability and not paying any attention to credit growth. And then you have, you know, uh, White's um, former colleague, Claudio Barrio, who, Borio, who took over as head of research at BIS and has done, a, you know, has led a, a team research effort over the last 12 years or so into many of the uh, uh, as I say, many of the unintended consequences of monetary policy. So you almost had to be outside the establishment, like Borio and White. They weren't, I mean, it's very notable that they weren't actually within any of the central banks themselves, but sort of on the periphery. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. You even mentioned in your book the case of Mervyn King, the previous central uh, governor of the Central Bank of England, because I, I think that he even said in 2016, after he retired, that interest rates were being kept very low. But when he was at the helm of the bank, he didn't change course. Is that correct? I think Mervyn King is 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 a very interesting case and, and very admirable, actually, because we can all make mistakes and we all make mistakes i mean again one of the i think to my mind you know perhaps the most useful thing about being in the investment world is constantly confronting one's own errors and having to come to terms with one's own errors and um bureaucrats policymakers often don't actually recognize their errors and i think that's sort of largely the case with the Federal Reserve. I mean, you read any of the stuff from Ben Bernanke, the Ben Bernanke, the 
who was head of the Federal Reserve, you know, at the time of the global financial crisis. He's ne- there's never a- anything in Bernanke's writing that suggests, you know, he might have messed up. Uh, whereas Mervyn King, you know, uh, he implemented, um, you know, the, the Bank of England's inflation targeted target <coughs> at the, you know, running into the global financial crisis. And, you know, at the time, you know, you know, obviously, household credit was going pretty strongly in Britain, and you had you know banks like Northern Rock offering you know loan to value value rate mortgages of one hundred twenty five percent, while at the same time being heavily dependent on the um, on the liquidity of the interbank markets for raising funds. Now, King, so we went into you know he was running the Bank of England going into the financial crisis. And at the time, the bank uh, you know, had coined this acronym, an acronym called NICE, Non-Inflationary Consistent Expansion. Mm-hmm. So it was a sort of pat on the back. And then I think after the financial crisis, uh, then King left. I can't remember what year he left. Let's say sort of sometime I don't know, 20, 2011 or sometime around then. And he then reflected on it. He's written a couple of books, one, one in 2016 called The End of Alchemy, and, and the other, a really extremely good book that he wrote with uh, John Kay called Radical Uncertainty, in which I think King has really sort of given up. He's... He, he, the experience of global financial crisis changed his view about what central bankers uh, were doing, what their targets should be, the dangers of setting these targets, the problems caused by monetary policy, how to operate in a world of radical uncertainty. So if you will, that to my mind, it's a sign of a really first-class mind to have, to have been able quite late on in life to have to have formed a, to reformed your your view of how the financial world and monetary policy make, making works and and you know, great kudos to Lord King for doing that. In instead, you uh, you may have noticed that King also was on the back on the House of Lords committee that put out a report last year, which was entitled "Quantitative Easing: A Dangerous Addiction." Uh, and pointing out some of the you know, problems caused um, by, well, the addiction to quantitative easing, uh, not least the massive expansion of the money supply during the COVID lockdowns, and the fact that as a result of the quantitative easing, the, the, from a corporate finance perspective, um, the Bank of England had, in effect, swapped fixed-rate, long-dated debt for short-rated floating debt at a time when the fixed-rate, long-dated debt was trading at very low levels. So that was a you know, a corporate finance disaster of an epic proportion that we taxpayers <laughs> will live with for years to come. Could I ask, you've, you've mentioned Ben Bernanke a couple of times and maybe not taking um, responsibility for 
the kind of low rate environment in the US. But um, in, in, his, in his autobiography, he says he did try to prevent the housing bubble in the US. He was raising rates into the GFC, but that the, the long end, basically the curve flattened. And obviously mortgages in the US are set off the, the long end of the curve rather than the short end. So that there wasn't actually much he could do, the global savings glut. And I guess there's other kind of mooted reasons, you know, demographics, et cetera, for the reason for low, permanently lower interest rates. Do you buy into that? Not a hundred percent. The where to start? The first of all, Bernanke uh, was the author of what's called the global savings glut hypothesis. The idea, as you say, that that long term rates were coming down because there was global savings glut. But in fact, the global savings glut, if one examines it, was really China and a number of other emerging markets intervening in the foreign exchange markets to to buy up dollars um, and and add to their foreign exchange reserves. And if you look at China, so China was running a large current account surplus, I think over 10% of, of its own GDP by 2007. And so current account surplus is, you know, Often seen, you know, seen as the proxy for a nation's, you know, excess savings. Uh, uh, but if you look at what was happening in China, these weren't savings, household savings. These were corporations uh, boosting their investment, and that investment was being driven by bank lending. So when a bank, and this is a point made by Claudio Borio. When a bank creates money or, or makes a loan that is then used for investment purposes, it generates saving out of nothing. So, you know, the you know the what happened is, you know, in the early two thousands was a sort of codependency between the U.S. and and and, and China. The the U.S. had these low interest rates. These um, and that fed through to a housing bubble, and that housing bubble was accompanied by roughly a half a five hundred, roughly a five hundred billion dollars a year of mortgage equity withdrawal by homeowners who then spent the money on goods and uh, not least Chinese imports. So, <laughs> so, so the Chinese were then selling stuff. To the Americans and taking the dollars that they received for their exports and using them to buy treasuries. Now, I mean, you know, to call that a global savings glut is, I think, a um, is is a is a pretty simplistic and, and misleading way of describing it. The other thing is that you know, it's simply not the case that the U.S. housing boom was entirely driven off the long end. There were a lot of if you remember, um, short-dated mortgage loans, so-called option arms, uh, option adjustable rate mortgages, also known as negative amortization loans. And it, towards the end of the housing bubble, those option arms played a pretty big role. I'm not sure if, you know, this the, the American craze for flipping houses, <laughs> um, which was... You know, I was living in in New York in two thousand five six when when that was going on big time. 
Um, I think those were largely the sort of household flipping was largely uh, funded with option arms or negative amortization arms. You could go out in effect and raise money with a so-called liar's loan. In other words, you'd fake, you know, you just, you fake your credit, uh, your income or, or your credit credentials, get a, a, a loan to value mortgage of, of you know, up to, uh, up to or even exceeding the value of the property you were buying, fund it with a negative amortization loan. So you weren't actually paying any interest on the loan up front, but interest only kicked in after a couple of years. And then you could flip the house um, six months later, or the property six months later. And people were doing this in, in US prisons at the time. So again, to say that you know the savings glut was responsible for the housing bubble is is wrong and and then i you know you know we're talking about groupthink i mentioned in my book that you know that bernanke um tried to sort of refute suggestions that monetary policy was in any way responsible uh for the for the housing bubble and, and bust by referencing you know internal fed research which when you looked at it was you know to my mind you know uh, pretty pretty partial and 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 I I wasn't at all convinced by its conclusions. I think that it was. And if you want Jim to listen Grant, to the full interview, Winchin. search the Value Perspective wherever you get your podcasts from. Speak to you next week. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcasts at Schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. 